This is the 13th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In Ear to the Ground number 12, we featured excerpts of a panel discussion on the future of agriculture that took place recently at the John Hassler Theater in the southeast Minnesota community of Plainview. Fred Kirsman, a North Dakota farmer and sustainable agriculture pioneer, led off the discussion. Kirsman writes and speaks extensively on agricultural trends and is currently a distinguished fellow at the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture, located at Iowa State University. In our last podcast, he laid out the history of farming and his take on the current trends that characterize modern industrial agriculture. He then went on to explain why these trends cannot continue if we are to create a food and farming system that lasts long into the future. Kirschman made an argument for shifting from an energy-intensive agriculture to systems that are more knowledge-focused and based on biological synergies. In this installment of Ear to the Ground, Kirschman fields questions from members of the audience as well as other participants in the panel discussion. Panelists included Mary Jo Forbert, a Western Minnesota farmer and executive director of the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, Southeast Minnesota farmers Mike Ruprecht, Larry Gates, and Paul Waska took part as well. Gates works as a watershed coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Waska is in charge of water quality monitoring for the Whitewater River drainage in southeast Minnesota. Gary Holthouse, a writer from Red Wing, Minnesota, moderated the discussion. The Q&A started off with a question from Larry Gates on the institutional support for making our agriculture more sustainable. Fred, um, I think you did a really nice job of uh, describing some of the pressures that are on us, you know, that we're going to be dealing with in regards to energy. You know, fresh water, uh, climate change, simplified cropping systems, and so on. And you talk about this huge change that's going to have to take place in the next 25 to 50 years to be able to get us out of this mess. I'm curious how you see, I don't know, just institutions as our land-grant institutions and others trying to step up to the plate to help to accommodate this kind of change or to help help through this, this period of time. Yeah, well, you know, if you, it, it, it isn't just this generation that has difficulty stepping up to the plate and making, I mean, this is, this is sort of indicative of the human species, and I think sometimes we have to question whether or not we really are the intelligent species or not. But if you look at this from a historical perspective, major changes never took place because somebody brilliant came along and said there's a better way to do this and was very convincing and you know, convinced his neighbors and they all changed and did things differently. Most of the major changes that have taken place in our, in our, in our cultures uh, throughout the planet have been because of a convergence of events that uh, made it clear that the current way of doing things was no longer possible. And uh, you know, if you want to read some some of the um, uh, historical analysis of that, some of Jared Diamond's work uh, is probably as good as we have. Uh, his Guns, Germs, and Steel, and now more recently his book Collapse. And um, and of course, Diamond points out that when these changes start to take place and they begin to converge upon a culture, then those societies that ultimately get to the point where they recognize uh, what changes are taking place and recognize uh, that they begin to recognize that there is another way to do things and start making those changes, those are the ones that survive. Those that for various reasons didn't make those changes were the, were the civilizations that didn't survive. And so there's a kind of lesson in there for us. Um, and, but I think that 
you know, I think that we're, we're not very far now from a time where these convergence of events for us are going are gonna to happen. And we can, you know, you can, you can imagine what may have been. It's, it, it's not just energy and water and climate change. You know, it's all of these other things that, that, that are happening in which the current system is gradually, you know, going to start breaking down. Um, the uh, United Nations Ecosystem Assessment Report tells us that about 60% of our ecosystem, uh, 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 you know, ecosystems now are at a point where they, where they will reach a point of collapse uh, if we continue, you know, uh, exploiting them and uh, polluting them at the rate that we've been doing over the last 50 years. So we're going to start seeing those kinds of collapses take place. And these will be, you know, another kind of wake-up call. So, um, you know, you can look at that and say, oh my God, you know, the, the whole planet's going to fall apart. Well, it could, but it also may mean that we will recognize that these convergence of events are taking place and it will, it will make us, I mean, you know, even if you even just look at it in terms, of, uh, in terms of fossil fuels, you know, what was it, just a year ago when SUVs were still the best-selling automobile and, you know, now both Ford and GM are, <laughs> you know, are... The, you know, uh, shutting down plants all over the place. Uh, so they got the message. You know, they need to they need to think differently about you know how we uh, you know how how we think about uh, our transportation mechanism because of the because of the, the fossil fuel issue. Fred, you talked about uh, after World War II how uh, things mechanized in order to give us the foods that we wanted. And uh, I had an occasion last night to look at. Uh, 1955-56 version of Life magazine and to realize I was born into the beginning of the days of convenience foods. Uh, Bisquick and Spam were the new things and oleomargarine with the red dye number two and yellow dye number six and you know this, this, was, this was big news. And I think increasingly one of the most hopeful signs that I see are uh, these are no longer the foods that people yeah. want. Yeah. And these are, these are closely related to our agricultural system. And if you think of uh, the 1950s and the change in the human diet from that time to uh, the proliferation of products in the market, 300,000 different products in the marketplace, uh, looks like we've got quite a bit of diversity. But actually, it's the illusion of diversity. And it's based on five commodities, and they are colored and flavored and textured and salted, and they're taste bud foods, and they're encased in, pro in wrappers that will last in our landfills far past our children's generation and, and beyond. And I think it's discourse like this right here in plain view that will be the change that needs to happen of people saying, this is not the kind of food that we are going to choose. Look at what it is doing to our health. Look at the cost of, of uh, health care insurance. The reason I became a nutritionist was in the 1970s, there was a pretty broad realization that food was the cornerstone of preventive health. Somehow we kind of took a 30-year hiatus from that, or, you know, we just, we are now coming around to say, okay, the costs are so great, the environmental degradation is so huge that one person at a time, we are going to make choices for a food system that is sustainable, and people are starting to put back together the food and the agriculture system, and it gives me great hope to yeah. see that. But it is, of course, difficult because when the profits are going in certain coffers, it gets sort of 
habitual and habit forming to have more and more profits going in certain coffers and to change that system so that we have a human scale of agriculture and can say that that's what we choose and that's what we demand to happen takes resilience, takes communication, takes envisioning what we want for our children for the next 20 years. What kind of food system for our children? What kind of landscape do we want them to live in? Binding up the hungry and the farmers and completing the whole system that is our food system that is very disjointed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. And it's one of those other uh, uh, events that are going to converge with these other things happening, and that is that uh, we have a very different... um, you know, consumer out there today, as you as you pointed out, and uh, you know, we used to all think that fast, convenient, and cheap was what you had to do if you were going to be successful in the food system, and that's no longer true. Uh, the Hartman Group tells us now that 62 percent of the consuming public, the primary thing they want now in their food is the values which they hold, which they want to have as as part of that food system, and so that's not fast, convenient, and cheap. You know, it's about uh, a, a better quality food. And that is taste that is good tasting, that has health and nutrition components to it, and that has a lot of the stories connected to it that people want to support. And one of those stories are family farms, you know. <laughs> so, so, there's, so, so the market is going to become a very important driver in moving us, and it already is. And it's not just individual consumers, it's also institutions, as you imply. Our school systems now are having to deal with this. Uh, because of obesity and diabetes. We now have type 2 diabetes among children, the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and parents are increasingly concerned about that and bringing pressure on the school systems to change you know, the diets in our school systems and our healthcare institutions. Uh, Kaiser Permanente, which is one of the largest hospital chains in the country, uh, has established now a food policy council to determine the kind of food standards that they're going to adopt as their hospital chain for their whole hospital system. Um, and what's driving that primarily, at the heart of it at least, is antibiotic resistance. But they're going to add other requirements to that. So again, this is going to be a huge demand in the marketplace for a different way of producing food than we've been used to. And, um, and, that, and that, I think that's very, very positive. I couldn't help but think when I was listening to Fred talk about uh, how we're going to have to change here. We. Um, have a number of farmers in this group here that are doing something like I'm doing with our rotational grazing system of animals on the pasture and we're rotating from paddock to paddock and pretty much trying to emulate the way nature did it with great herds of buffalo and other <coughs> grass-eating animals. And it's a very low input system as far as the amount of fuel and energy we're using. We're, we're actually building up the soil as we graze and then we re- give it the rest period and we let the, the plants grow back and the roots grow back underneath the soil. And I think that's probably one of the ways we need to go, but Fred and, and myself are also certified organic farmers and I'm a little bit concerned about the system that we're using to grow certified organic corn certified organic grains. Um, it's pretty much conventional agriculture with a couple little tweaks on it. Uh, what is your outlook as far as uh, that part of it? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, if you import your seaweed from Japan, 
then you're probably not solving your energy problems. <laughs> you know, so and uh, you know, and a number of a number of uh, uh, agronomists have said that what much of organic agriculture has gravitated to now is simply input substitution. So we substitute natural inputs for synthetic ones, but we haven't really dealt with you know the synergies of the system as you've described it. And so, so uh, you know, organic as it's currently being practiced is not the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem is the kind of biological synergies that you just talked about that you're practicing on your farm. And I think we're only at the beginnings of that. You know, I don't know if, if those of you who are acquainted with uh, Joel Salatin's farm, who also uses intensive rotational grazing. He lives, he's a farm out in Virginia. Um, 140 acres, so it's a small farm. 40 acres of that is woodland, so actually it's the, the farming part of it, the, the animal part of it is 100 acres. And he has that all divided up into paddocks. But he has, if I remember correctly, I think seven species of animals you know, that he uses in that system. And he's, it's, he's become very sophisticated about which animals follow which animals so that each animal contributes something to the system. Now, just as an example, he starts out with this beef cattle. They go into the paddock, they're in for 24 hours, then they move to the next paddock, and then he brings in the chicken tractor with the chickens 90 hours after the cattle move out because at 90 hours is when the grubs and the larvae and the manure are just at the right stage for feed for the chickens. So the chickens feed on the larvae and they scratch out the manure to fertilize the grass for more grass. And his whole system is put together that way. Um, And so those, I think, are the kinds of synergies that we need to think about. And he, on those 100 acres, as he likes to say, supports three families on white-collar wages. Uh, so it's a very productive farm. I don't remember the statistics. He produces something like 40,000 pounds of beef off of those 100 acres every year, and, and the chicken, and the turkey, and the, the, the lamb, and you know, <laughs> eggs. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a very, very productive farm because he's not monoculture. You know, he's, he's focused on the maximum production of a, of a range of different products from the same acreage, uh, which, uh, yield, the yield of which is based on the synergies among the, among the various species in the system. And I think those are the kinds of uh, the kind of future uh, farms that are going to be the ones that are going to be uh, that are going to thrive. I'd just like to pick up on your point, Fred, about the dramatic changes that we see in climate, and in particular precipitation. In recent years, down here in southeastern Minnesota, we've we've really had an abundance of moisture, but but it hasn't been the one inch per week that, you know, the row crops would like. It's more often than not, it's uh, eight inches in a week. And when that eight inches of rainfall comes on row crops that have just been planted, uh, we see some horrific soil erosion going on. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, how how do you see row crops really fitting into that dramatic variability in, in climate? Yeah, the uh, agronomy department at Iowa State University, there are a team of, I think, six scientists. Uh, Gene Tackley is uh, uh, taking the lead in that, that have uh, tried to uh, predict what climate change is going to mean for agriculture in Iowa. And um, they've determined, based on the best information that's available now, based on the kinds of changes that are taking place, is that there's actually likely to be a cooling core right over central Iowa. And when you take that into account in terms of the overall situation, they're predicting that there will be a 21% increase in precipitation in Iowa by the year 2040. 
and that most of that moisture, increased moisture, is going to come in the form, as you've just said, more violent storms. You know, it's not going to be, you know, 21 inches more rainfall spread nice and gently over the period of time, but it's going to come in much more kind of flash storms kind of thing. And so they're predicting that, that what that likely means is a 51% increase in surface runoff. Now, you know and I know that there's no way that you can have 92% of your cultivated land in corn and soybeans with 51% increase in surface runoff. So uh, that in itself is going to mean some shifts in how we use the land. And, you know, that part of it, we already, we, you know, we already have. I mean, you've done some research here in Minnesota uh, where if you reduce in a couple of the watersheds you've been working on here, if you reduce... Uh, the amount of corn and soybeans from 89% to I think it's 37%, some intensive rotational grazing into the mix, uh, buffer strips on the, on the um, stream banks and et cetera, those kinds of changes, then um, you, know, you, you dramatically reduce uh, the sediment runoff. You dramatically reduce uh, nitrogen leaching. Um, and interestingly enough, and one thing that interests me as a farmer, is that in that new system, farmers have a 105% increase in net income, despite the fact they have a 45% increase in cost, in capital cost, in, in terms of you know, buying animals and fencing, et cetera. You know, now, you know, if I can put in a system that is going to save my soil and prevent uh, nitrogen leaching, and I can have a 105% increase in net income, no, I'm interested in that. <laughs> but again, you know, we have this cultural thing where specialization, simplification, concentration, which are the three primary principles of any industrial system, drive the culture. And so, you know, as Paul Thompson says, we farmers all operate out of an ethic now which is based on a single principle, and that's produce as much as possible regardless of the cost. <laughs> you know, and that's really true. So we have to... You know, we have to move beyond that. And, and of course, all of us, none of us like to change, especially when you get to be you know, my age. But uh, I can tell you that the uh, young graduates from Iowa State University who, who and, and you know, many of them are locked into the old culture too, and they're just trying to figure out how they can go back to the farm and do corn and soybeans. But many of them are really thinking about you know, this, that this is not going to work into the future and so they're really thinking about alternative ways, and, and, and some of them are quite imaginative. And so I think our beginning farmers, the farmers who are in their 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, you know, who know that this is not going to continue to work in the future, and then as these pressures begin to come, we're going to see some cultural shifts and cultural changes take place. It's not going to be easy. And, and again, I think the responsibility that those of us who are connected with land-grant universities have is to do everything we can to do the research that can support you know, these new systems. Because farmers are already out there doing it, so let's get the research that helps them to enhance their systems, you know, so that you can have, you know, figure out what additional kinds of things you can do in that system that adds to its, uh, to its resilience and to its producti productivity. Fred, um, fast forward 10 years. Yeah. What does the commodity subsidy program look mm -hmm. like? What does CSP look like? Well, see, this is, now we haven't even talked about policy, and now you've brought it up. And, um, <laughs> um, and, and policy, of course, uh, has to play a role here. Uh, I think the market's going to have to drive it, and the, the, the scenario which you indicated about the market, market is what's very hopeful. But then coming along with that has to be these policy changes. Now, I think that, I know, we all know, 
that the public is becoming increasingly disenchanted with the current farm program. Uh, one of the things I did when the 2002 Farm Bill was passed was, uh, you know, I got on the internet and checked to see what the what the editorials were in the major metropolitan newspapers, and they were universally caustic. You know, why are we doing this? You know, and and you know, one 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 uh, editorial said, "Tell us again exactly why it is that my tax dollars are going to support Ted Turner." You know, because Ted Turner owns farmland, and so of course. Uh, uh, he gets subsidies. And so, you know, the public sees it in terms of these kinds of, uh, you, know, the, these, the, you know, these kinds of issues. And, and then on top of that, of course, as, as you all know now with the, with the exploding deficit, um, you know, I, I, don't, I think that, you know, the, the commodity subsidies will probably stay in place for another, another round of the farm bill. But it's, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to have to change because, uh, you know, the primary taxpayers now are obviously suburban and urban citizens, and the more they become disenchanted, the more they're going to bring pressure. Now, the current lobbying system is going to continue to try to keep things where they are, so you're going to have those two pressures coming together uh, with our legislators. Uh, but um, I think that the, uh, uh, the ultimate lay, the, you know, the citizens are going to win out on this one. Because, and the other thing is because, you know, it just... It just, it just it, it, it's not working. You know, if you look at the thing, is, the only thing that the subsidies don't really help the farmers, all it does is enables them to stay in business in an economy in which the cost of producing the crops and livestock eat up all of the cash receipts which they get. So there's no net income. So the net income has to come from off-farm jobs and from government subsidies. So, you know, eventually we all recognize that that's simply not a sustainable system. But then you have to deal with the, how do you how do you make the shift to a new system, and that's of course that's where the pain comes in, and that's where the difficulties are. And but again, that's why I think we you know we really need to do the research that helps you know, and, and then get the models make the models more visible. And one of the you know one of the nice things about our sustainable ag communities, I think, is that they this is one of the things their real contributions they're making is they're saying, look, you know, there's some farmers out there now who are not heavily dependent on subsidies because if you're farming organically and you've got five or six crops, you know, you don't get the same level of commodity subsidies when you're just raising corn and soybeans or when, if, when I'm raising just wheat. You don't get any for growing hay. Yeah, that's right. For pasture. That's right, that's right. Yeah. I, I could, on my farm, I could get more money from the government if I planted corn or sure, beans or sure. even oats instead of leaving it in pasture. Sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you're still making more more net profit even without the government subsidies, yeah. right? <laughs> so you know those are the you know eventually you know the rationality of the system begins to you know people begin to understand that this is an irrational system that we have, and then of course we have to figure out how do you enable farmers to transition from what they're doing now to this new future, and that's where pu public policy then begin can begin to play a really positive role. Dion? Yeah. Fred, um, is it possible that we actually picked on the lesser of two evils when we focused on trying to reduce the energy inputs into agriculture as opposed to trying to reduce the water inputs that we yeah. Yeah. In, in, in put into agriculture? Yeah. Maybe not in this state for the most yeah. part, but because if I'm not mistaken, you can't make new water. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you can't necessarily make petroleum like this either, but 
energy has many more different forms that can be moved around and interchanged and whatever and so forth. And so in some sense, there's flexibility. But in the case of water, yeah. there's not very many yeah. choices. Yeah. Yeah. And my sense is, I've actually thought for some time that we're going to run out of water before we run out of oil. Yeah, we'll certainly run out, we'll, we'll, or, or at least the water will get depleted to a point where it's not going to be uh, functional for irrigation before we run out of oil. Uh, but as the oil becomes, w w whether, how much the energy uh, constraints over against the water constraint, yeah, they're, they're going to sort of come, I think, together, and that's what's going to really drive this. But you're absolutely right. You know, For example, it's really insane in terms of public policy for us to subsidize irrigation water in California, just to use one state. You know, if we were providing subsidies to put in drip irrigation, that would make some sense. But what we're doing by subsidizing the water is encouraging inefficient water use. It's just the opposite of what we need to be doing in terms of long-term sustainability. Yeah. That's it for this installment of Ear to the Ground. The Future of Agriculture panel discussion was sponsored by the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota and the Rural America Institute for the Humanities and Community. It was made possible in part with funding from the Minnesota Humanities Commission in cooperation with the National Endowment for the Humanities. For more on the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture and Fred Kirschman, see www.leopold.iastate.edu. That's www.leopold.iastate.edu. IASTATE.EDU. There you will find background on Kirschman's farm as well as excerpts of his writings. Details on the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, which focuses on farmer to farmer education, are at www.sfa-mn.org. That's www.sfa-mn.org. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also give me a call at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.